Hey, hey, Northridge family. Glad you're here. I hope today finds you well. Um, we're going to start with a time of prayer. And, of course, there's loads to pray about, and our prayer list is still pretty consistent uh, based upon what's going on in the world. We want to pray for our local, state, and national leaders. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the numbers of coronavirus cases in Guyman or Texas County is rising, so our local leaders are going to need wisdom to know what to do. Governor Stitt's going to continue to need wisdom as the cases continue to rise in Oklahoma. And then, of course, the president, is he's trying to manage all of the states and all the things that are going on with that. I want to pray for our church and our church family. Uh, pray for those that, of course, we, many in our church family had things going on before all this happened. And now that things have begun to happen, there's more going on. So pray for those that are maybe isolated, those that may not have family close by that can visit with them. Uh, pray for them. Pray for ways we can minister and serve one another in the name of Jesus. Pray for the other churches in Guyman. All the churches in Guyman are trying to do our best to to help and encourage our community to serve it in the best way that we can. <clears throat> so pray that all the churches would have wisdom as we look at maybe easing things up so churches can begin to meet again. There's going to need to be wisdom among the churches about how we go about doing that. So pray about that. Uh, pray for Nancy Schmidt, and the, the, the new, who is the new CEO of Texas County Memorial Hospital. Pray for the staff there, the board there. And all the healthcare workers, again, with the cases rising up, there's a greater chance of exposure for them. Pray they would be protected uh, against that. Pray for Dan Stiles, the board and the staff and the residents of Dunaway Manor. Pray Dan and this board would have wisdom to know how to best protect the residents. Pray the residents and the staff would be protected and not get sick. Pray for our teachers, students, and local school boards. So they try to decide what to do, particularly about things like graduation, how to do it, what would be the best way to, to do it for the students. Pray for those seniors who are missing out on a few things this year uh, because they're senior year. Pray for those in our community who are classified as the most vulnerable, those that we may know who have prior health conditions, who may be elderly. Pray for them. Pray for those we know who are corrected by the who are affected by the coronavirus. As the numbers really in town and in our country increase, more and more we're going to know people who are affected by this. So pray for them. Pray for those who are anxious and fearful. Uh, the higher the numbers rise, the more fearful people become. Pray for those people. And then pray people would turn to Jesus in this time of fear. And uncertainty. That, that's our, our greatest prayer. Is that in this time people would turn to Jesus. And they would find in him a shelter. A place of refuge. And a very present help in a time of trouble. Let me read to you from Psalm 19. And we will pray. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of the chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit is to the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statute of the Lord is right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey out of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is much great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright. I shall be innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, you are wonderful and amazing. You are glorious and in beauty and majestic and power. And God, you are far greater than our minds can comprehend. We always, Lord, we ask you to open our minds to better understand your greatness, to loose our tongues so we can declare your greatness, Lord, both in, in prayer and in praise and in sharing with others how good and how wonderful our God is. Lord, help us in this time of uncertainty, in this time when things are, are hectic and chaotic to see you. Father, the heavens declare your glory. Uh, and Lord, you are always at work in this world. Father, you are always doing things in our lives and in, in the world around us. And we just need eyes to see it. Help us to see what you're doing in us and through us and around us, God. Give us eyes to see that and let us join with you in doing your will in this country. And doing your will in our community. Help us to see Father, your power, help us to see your greatness, help us to see your love and your mercy, help us to see just you at work all around us. God, uh, these prayer requests that we've mentioned, be with Dan Stiles and the board at the manor, give them wisdom to make good and godly decisions, guide them to make the kind of decisions that would keep the residents and the staff safe. Don't let the coronavirus get in to make anybody sick in there. Uh, keep them all well. Be with Nancy Schmidt and the board to, to have wisdom to know how to handle things from the hospital side. Protect the staff. Uh, keep them safe, Lord, as they are really right on the front lines dealing with people probably all the time who either have it or could have it. Keep them, Lord, from being able to, from contracting it. Give them wisdom to be able to best care for the people of our town. God, our president and God, our governor and our local leaders, give them wisdom to know what you want done. Lord, have your way in all things. Bless our church. Guide us to be a city set on a hill. Help us to be, Lord, a, a beacon of hope in our community. And let there be hope, help, and healing through Christ shine out from us. God, all of our churches in God, and Father, to have wisdom to know what to do. And how to do it to best be able to minister to our people, to our community, and bring glory and honor to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> a little over a month before he died, the famous atheist Jean-Paul Sartre declared that he strongly resisted feelings of despair. He would say to himself, I shall die in hope. And then in profound sadness, he would declare... But hope needs a foundation. Now, I love that last line of the story. Hope needs a foundation. We all need hope. We, we need it all the time. But, but right now is a time where we truly, desperately, we need hope. 
The people of the world, I truly believe, they need us as disciples of Jesus to be a people of hope. To not sink in despair. To not give in to hopelessness. But hope must be built on something. Right? Because as disciples of Jesus, when we speak about hope, we're not talking about some sort of far-fetched wish we wish would come true. We wish the wind would stop. No, it's not anything like that. Hope is a well-grounded, well-founded assurance. God will do what He has said He will do. Now, where can we get hope? Where does hope come from? I'm going to try to answer those questions today. Open your Bible to Romans 15 and verse 4. I'm going to put the verse up on the screen since it's just the one verse. Romans 15 and 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and the comfort of Scripture, might have hope. Title of the message this morning is, The Foundation of Hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are the giver of hope. You are the author of hope. That You are our God in whom we trust And God, we know that you reign over this earth. We know that you reign in our life. We know that, Lord, nothing that's going on is outside of your control. And you are able to handle everything, even though it is so far beyond our ability to handle. Even though, Lord, even our our national leaders cannot take care of what needs to be done. God, we know you can. So, God, help us to have an eye towards you. Help us. To have a heart filled with hope. Let us speak in hope. Let us pray in hope. Let us live in hope. And Lord, let us get our hope from you and from your word. Let it not be some sort of far-fetched dream we wish would come to pass. But Lord, let us be sure. Be sure our hope is built upon what you have said. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways. Let your word work in our lives. Let it convict us where we need convicting. Let it strengthen us where we need strengthening. Let it encourage us where we need encouraging. Use this time we have to draw us closer to you and make us more of who you want us to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, hope, as we see here, comes from Scripture. All that was written in Scripture was written for us, for our learning. So, from patience and from the comfort of Scripture, we would find hope. Right. So, that the key truth is, the Word of God is the foundation of our hope from God. The Word of God is the foundation of our hope from God. And I want to give you three Reasons are three ways that the Word of God gives us hope from God. It becomes the foundation of our hope from God. First is, God's Word reveals the Almighty God. Right? God's Word reveals the Almighty God. Now, the idea of God being Almighty or all-powerful, it's not a new concept. We are all familiar with it. If you have read through Scripture at all... You find it talking about this in so many places. Our God is in the heavens and He He does whatsoever He wants. Right? Our God rules 
over the nations. He reigns over all things. Uh, And we could just go on and on looking at lots of passages that tell us about God's almighty power. But we don't have time for that. Instead, what I want us to do, I just want to remind you of two, not really stories, but two places to go in Scripture that remind us of God's almighty power. One would be creation. Right? God's Word always explains God as the creator of all things. Right? I mean, that's how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? And I love that because the picture is there was nothing but God. And then God decided there needed to be stuff, and God made the stuff. Now, something that's really awesome is there are a lot of creation myths that are ancient, are very, very old. Uh, And many of them come from the time of, of Moses and Abraham and some even older than that. And skeptics often point to these creation myths and say, see, every culture that's ever lived has come up with a myth to explain how the world came in to being. And while it's true, virtually every culture in existence has had different stories to explain the way the world came into being, there are at least two reasons the Genesis account is different from all others. Right? In all other accounts, there was usually some sort of opposition to the Creator. Right? It, it might have been another God who wanted to stop creation, or another God who wanted to destroy creation. Either way, there was some sort of opposition to the God trying to create the heavens and the earth. And the Creator God had to overcome the opposition. Now sometimes the Creator God had to overcome the opposition not by greater strength, but by greater cunning, by greater skill. Uh, And they were more tricky than powerful is kind of how they ended up creating everything. Another difference is in other accounts, the Creator God started off with something to create everything. In one account, there were two gods, and one of them died or or was killed. And the other god used the body of the god who died and created everything from that. Right, And regardless, there was always this other stuff that was already in existence that the Creator God used to create. So in essence, the Creator God didn't create as much as renovate or remodel stuff that was already there. But neither of those is present in the creation account in Genesis or in John chapter 1. In the beginning, there is God. Satan is not... He is not in the beginning to oppose God. Satan is not eternally self-existing. right? Satan is a created being. So at some point in the creation process, Satan himself was created. There was no opposition to God. There was no one or nothing that opposed our God from causing the world to come into existence. Secondly... God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing until God spoke and then there was something. God did not use any sort of pre-existing materials to create the world. Unlike the false gods of the creation myth, 
God did not remodel. God created. He actually created. And he created out of nothing. But not only did God in an unopposed manner create everything out of nothing. He did it in a very particular way. If you've read through Genesis 1, you're probably familiar with this repeated formula. God said, and there was. God spoke the world and all there is into existence. Psalm 33, 6, uh, Hebrews 11 and 3, both testify to the fact God merely spoke the world into existence. Now, as I've thought about this in various times as I've read through creation account, I thought, why is the continual repetition of God said and there was? Now, anytime I see repetition in Scripture, I typically I underline it because I figure repetition is God's way of emphasizing something. So what is God emphasizing in the creation account by constantly reminding us God spoke and there was. He's reminding us of His great power. Did creating everything out of nothing exhaust the mighty power of God? Did creating everything out of nothing, did it drain God? Did, did, it, did it tax God's mighty power? Did it require Him to do great and awesome things? No. No, our God, the God of the Bible, is so great... He just spoke. He just spoke and where there was nothing, suddenly there was something. God is so powerful. His words can bring into existence things that did not exist. But He can speak and things happen. It is as simple as that for God to create. God's Word reveals the Almighty Creator God to us. Another example of God's power in Scripture is the book of Revelation, the whole book. So God not only brings history into being, but the book of Revelation is about God bringing history to a close. That's, that's kind of the point of the book of Revelation. God just decides the world's gone on long enough. This hasn't happened yet, but at some point it will. God's decided there's the world has gone on long enough. And so he brings the world to a close. He just decides to do it. And he does. And, and, and there is there, there's no real struggle. There's no more struggle in bringing history to a close than there is in God creating the world as he speaks. When God determines it's time to, to pour out a measure of his judgment, he just does. When God determines it's time for lightning and thunder to come upon the earth, it just does. God causes a star to fall upon the earth just because He wills it. God causes the sun to burn super hot because He wills it. God causes weird animal-like things to come upon the earth just because He wills it. God does it and, and none can oppose Him. Even there's this period of time in Revelation where the Antichrist reigns on the earth and it seems as though he has all power and he is the great power, but it's an illusion. God's word says 
that this power, this authority was given to him. Who gave him that power? Who gave him that authority? It was God. And then when God decides the Antichrist has reigned on the earth long enough, he just conquers him and tosses him into a pit for a thousand years. And he gets out in a thousand years, but who let him out? Well, it was it was God. And he he musters up the, the Antichrist, the Satan. He musters up this one final assault against God. But it's not this great and mighty battle where God barely wins. It's just God decides he's had enough and he destroys him with the words of his mouth. And he takes Satan and he tosses him to the lake of fire where he will stay for all of eternity. Throughout it all, God just does it. Now, from the perspective of earth, the devil seems to be a great adversary from the Lord. But from God's perspective, not so much. The book of Revelation is not the story of Satan's last hurrah. And he almost wins, but whew, thankfully God overcomes. The book of Revelation is the story of how God pours out a measure of his judgment on the world before bringing history to a close. And fully bringing the world and Satan and the demons included into judgment. That, that is a powerful, powerful God. Scripture, the word of God reveals the almighty God to us. So how does God's word revealing the almighty God to us give us hope from God? Because the God of creation and the God of revelation is the God to whom we pray. When we pray, every time we pray, we are praying to the God who spoke the world into existence. When we pray, we are talking to the God who will one day bring history to a close and will just do it. We're talking to the God Paul will say in Ephesians 3 and 20 is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or imagine. This God, this almighty God, Invites us to cast all of our cares upon him. For he cares for us. It is a hopeful thing. To know the God to whom we pray. Is all powerful. And really can do anything he wants to do. And nothing or no one can stop him. This is the God revealed in the word of God. This is why the word of God is the foundation of our hope from God. Because it reveals to us the great, the awesome God of the Bible. Secondly, so God's word reveals the almighty God. Secondly, God's word reveals the empowering God. Feelings of helplessness. Feelings of Inadequacy can lead to feelings of hopelessness. Often we feel hopeless because we feel hopelessly inadequate. We feel hopeless because we feel hopelessly helpless. We can't do anything. I mean, I'm just terrible. I'm not good. I kind of stink at, at, at everything. The reality is, disciples of Jesus should never actually feel helpless or inadequate. Because God always empowers His people to do His will. 
Now, in, in the Bible, God is the star of Scripture, right? He is the star from in the beginning to amen, right? God is the star, but God has this incredible supporting cast throughout Scripture. But the point of their stories is not how great they are. The point of their stories is how great their God is. Right, let me give you three of my favorite examples. The first would be Moses. Right, because Moses is the great deliverer. Right, he delivered the people from Egyptian bondage. And he's the great giver of the law of God to the people. Yet, if you read the story... It's really not Moses who delivers the people from Egyptian bondage, is it? It's, it's God. Right? All Moses did, all Moses did was go to Pharaoh, say what God wanted said, and do what God wanted done, and God did all the carry, all the heavy lifting. Right? Who was it that turned the river to blood? Who was it that sent locusts? Who was it that darkened the sky? It wasn't Moses. It was God. It was always God. Right? When, when, the, when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, it's not because Moses the mighty delivered them. It's not because Moses the great negotiator worked out an acceptable plan. It's because God worked so powerfully in the Exodus, in Egypt, that Pharaoh said, go, take your people and leave. It was God. We, we would look at David. David is another awesome example of God's power. David's most famous story, maybe, is his battle with Goliath. Right? It is a great story. The armies of Saul, Saul himself, and, and all of his heroes are, are hiding. I mean, they're just cowering. And they're cowering because there is a champion of the Philistines who comes out every day. And he says, you choose a guy and I'll be our champion. And if you guys win, we'll be your slaves. And if you win, or if I win, you'll be our slaves. But Goliath is a giant and he's powerful. And there's no one in Saul's army who has the courage to fight until David arrives. David doesn't come as a soldier. David comes bringing food to his brothers from his dad to get word from the front lines how things are going. He hears the giant defy the armies of God. And he says, I'll go if no one else will. And they say, oh no, you, you can't. You're just a boy. David says, I'll go. I'll do it. And he doesn't wear any armor. And all he takes is his shepherd's sling and five smooth stones. And he walks out. And with a slingshot, he knocks Goliath down. And then he takes Goliath's sword. And he chops his head off. Of course, David goes on to become king. And, and you would think this would be the story. This is the beginning story of a great warrior king over Israel. But it's really not. It's the story of a God who can use anyone he wants to to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Right now, this isn't just my opinion. This is what the story actually says. Saul tries to convince David not to go. He says, you're just a boy. And this dude's been a he's been a warrior since he was a boy. David said, 
God has given me victory in the past and God will give me victory over this uncircumcised Philistine. And then David goes and he stands in front of Goliath and Goliath, Goliath is, he's basically mocking David. What am I, a dog? Come on, I'm a real warrior, look at this. David says, you you come at me. With a sword and spear, but I come in the name of the God of Israel, whom you have defied. <clears throat> and he will deliver you into my hands this day. David proclaimed it was God who had done it. Not David. And then Elijah. I love Elijah. Most famous story with Elijah is his battle with the false prophets on Mount Carmel. The people have gone deep into idolatry. And Elijah challenges all of the prophets of Baal to a battle. Right? And here's the way the battle is going to work. There's Elijah and there's the prophets of Baal. And each is going to, to build an altar to their God. And they're going to build this altar. They're going to lay a sacrifice on it. And then they're going to pray. And the God that answers by fire, that's the real God. And the other God is not real. That's kind of the battle. <clears throat> but they don't set it up. And they both start praying at the same time. And Elijah says, you guys go first. Now, recognize the danger here. If they pray and Baal sends fire, Elijah's going to die. But Elijah's not concerned. He, he believes his God is the real God. So... He lets them go and they they pray and they cry out and they do all of these things and nothing happens. And Elijah builds his altar. He pours water on it and then he prays a simple prayer to his God. Fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice and the water. Elijah wins or Elijah's God wins, really, because the point of the story isn't 14 tips to fire-consuming prayer. That's not the point. The point isn't what a great prayer Elijah was. <clears throat> the point is how great the God of Elijah is. That's the point. Now, you're probably familiar with these stories. You wonder, well, how does this, how does this stir hope? I mean, how, how does this stir hope if I feel helpless and I feel inadequate? The answer is in this verse right here. James, this is James chapter 5, verse 17, if you can't see the reference. It says, this is just part of a verse, but it's the part I want us to see today. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And here's what this means. Elijah was not a spiritual ex-man. He wasn't a superhero. He was a person just like us. He had the same kind of nature you and I have. He dealt with the same kind of issues you and I deal with. He was just like us. And what's true of Elijah is true of all the heroes of the Bible outside of Jesus. Think about Moses. Moses did lead the children out. He did give the law. But, but what did Moses first do when God said, Moses, I'm calling you. Did he say, Amen, Lord, it's about time? No. He said, Whoa! Who am I? Exodus 
3 and 4. Right? I mean, he gives this long list of excuses. There's a, there's a bush on fire. It's not being consumed. God is talking out of it. He knows it's God. And God's saying go. And he's like, oh, whoa, whoa. I like the idea of you delivering them. But me? Who am I? I'm not a good talker. Won't nobody believe you sent me? Oh, and then finally, God keeps giving him answers to his excuses. Who am I? I'll make sure. I mean, he's just constantly, God's like, it's me. You're not what's important. I am. And finally, Moses just says, no, no, send somebody else. I don't want to go. Moses was just an ordinary guy who, who was afraid of doing what God wanted him to do. But, and on top of that, Moses had anger management issues. Why was Moses in the wilderness tending sheep anyway? Because he got mad and he killed somebody. Two somebodies. When Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. <coughs> I have a tickle in my throat. It's not anything else. He comes down. The people are, have gone crazy worshiping the idols. What did he do? He smashed the Ten Commandments. So are you someone that maybe you're afraid of doing God's will? Are you maybe afraid of doing the things you think God wants you to do? Do you have a struggle with your sinful nature? Maybe your anger? You are just the kind of ordinary person God can use and wants to use to accomplish His will right here in our community. Or what about David? When God first chose one of Jesse's sons, did Jesse say, oh yeah, you mean David? That's the dude you're looking for. He didn't. In fact, when Samuel said, get all your sons together, Jesse didn't even send for David. And God told, uh, told him, he told Samuel, he said, it's not any of these. And he, he said, Does, do you have another son? And Jesse's response was, well, yeah, I mean, but just David. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, but it can't be him. But it was him. And then, I mean, we know about David's Incident with Bathsheba. Not only did he take a married woman. Not only did he sleep with her. He tried to cover up her pregnancy by having her husband come back. And when her husband came back and wouldn't go into his wife. And it was going to be exposed that she was pregnant. And and Uriah had been gone. David wrote a letter. And he gave it to Uriah. And it was Uriah's death warrant. He had Uriah murdered. And then if you read the Psalms. How many times. How many Psalms are David's? And how many of those does it start off with something like. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David dealt with depression and discouragement. And doubts about God. And yet, he was a man after God's own heart. So are you someone that maybe the rest of the world overlooks? People would say, oh, you couldn't be someone God could use. You have a past and a history that's not so good. You've made terrible decisions. Do you wrestle with doubts? Do you struggle with depression? You are just the kind of ordinary person. God can use to accomplish His will 
in our community. And finally, Elijah. Sure, Elijah boldly prayed on Mount Carmel. But what happened right after that? Bathsheba sends word, I'm, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. What does he do? I just prayed fire down from heaven. God just answered my prayer with fire. I ain't worried about you. No. He runs away in fear. He, he determines he is no good. He hides from the conflict. He gets depressed and he basically says, God, kill me. I'm useless. Kill me. Man, do, do you go from highs to lows at times? Someday you're like, yes, with God I can charge hell with a squirt gun. And the next day you're like, God, I'm useless. What's going on? I, where are you? You're just the kind of person God can use to do extraordinary things. We could look at every hero of the Bible other than Jesus and we would find that all of them had flaws. All of them failed. All of them had issues. None of their stories were about how great they were. Their stories were all about how great their God was. That's the point of all of them. So what this means for us and the way it gives us hope is God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. God can and will use each and every one of us for His glory if we're willing. Are you a believer who struggles with failures and flaws and doubts and issues? Then you are just the kind of person God can and will use to accomplish His will in Gaiman and Goodwill and Hooker and Texoma and, and anywhere else He would choose to send us. Your ability, my ability, to do what God wants done, it's not based upon our being great. God is great. Our sufficiency is not based upon us. It is based upon the goodness, the greatness, the grace, and the power of Almighty God who empowers His people and makes us sufficient so we can do all the things that need to be done. Our sufficiency and our ability is always from God and never from us. This is the God revealed in the Word. And it's why the Word of God is the foundation of our hope from God. And then finally, so we have God's Word reveals the Almighty God. God's Word reveals the empowering God. God's Word finally reveals the Son of God. One of the more common criticisms we hear about Christianity, about God's Word in particular, is it makes people feel bad because it paints a negative view of humanity. Is that true? Does the Bible give us a, a very negative view of humanity? Well, let, before we make a decision, let's look at the passage. Turn back a few pages to Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. It's too much to put on the screen and be able to read, so just turn there if you have your Bible. Here's what Romans 3, verses 10 through 18 says. As it is written, there is none righteous, 
No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues, with their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, that does kind of sound negative, right? No good. None who does right. No one seeks after God. Throat's an open tomb. Mouth is like the poison of asps. Those all seem like pretty negative things. But, before we conclude... The Bible gives a negative picture of humanity. Let's think a little bit deeper about what we see here. So verse 13 says, Throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. And the poison of asps is under their lips. Right, so deceitful. Right, this refers to, of course, lying. The poison of asp uh, refers to mouths that are filled with malice. And to hurt others. This could be gossip. could be personal attacks. Could be belittling, could be lashing out angrily or seeking to degrade someone with their words. Verse 14, mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Cursing here doesn't refer to profanity as much as it does to curse others or to say harsh and negative things about others. In verse 15, feet are swift to shed blood. This seems to refer to people who are quick to become violent. Verse 16, it says... Destruction and misery are in their ways. They are people who destroys what is good. Whether it would be a home, a family, a church, a marriage, or anything else that would be good. They just kind of cause misery everywhere they go. Now, that does sound negative, but let's be honest. Because that sounds like the world I live in. I mean, doesn't that sound like the world you live in? Couldn't most of what passes for political discourse among the talking heads on TV, be described as the poison of asps and being filled with cursing and bitterness? I mean, doesn't the news pretty consistently tell us stories of people who are swift to shed blood? Don't we see people with whom destruction and misery seem to be a natural part of their lives? Aren't we constantly bombarded by stories with stories about people Who don't seem to know the way of peace. But just make everything and everyone miserable. I mean isn't that the world out there? Of course it is. But but let's bring it even closer. What about our immediate world? Don't we see the same sort of things among the regular people just in our community? I mean don't we know loads of folks who just don't seek after God? They see no need for God or for Jesus at all. Don't we know loads of folks who, who live lives of open sin and there is just no fear of God in their eyes? But let's bring it even closer. Let's, let's meddle a bit. Don't we experience many of these same things in our own hearts, in our own lives? Haven't we all turned away from God's way at one point or another? Hasn't the poison of asps? been on our lips at one time or another. Maybe we just said it to our spouse, but it was there and we we said it. Haven't we all been deceitful at one time or another? 
Haven't we all let our mouths be filled with bitterness and cursing toward others at one point or another? Right? I know for me, these things have been true of me far more than I would want to admit. So does God's Word paint a negative picture of humanity? Only if by negative you mean accurate. The accurate picture of humanity in these verses. This is what we see out there, around here, in here, in our own lives. We see these things. So how does this give us hope? Well, God's Word deals honestly and accurately about our sin. God's Word also reveals a great Savior who has come to take away our sin. Look at verse 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. There's just an all-encompassing statement. And as we've already seen, that absolutely includes us. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. See, it reveals a Savior who, who has taken away our sin. He has borne our wrath. What Jesus did on the cross, it, it wasn't the death of a martyr. But it wasn't because He made the wrong people angry. Jesus' death on the cross was the reason He was born. He came to die. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And, and the reason He was slain was He came to be a sacrifice for our sins, to be our propitiation. That on the cross, the, the, the suffering Jesus endured, the physical suffering, wasn't the greatest part of what He endured there. The greatest part of what Jesus endured on the cross was all of our sin and all of our wrath that we have earned was placed upon Him on the cross and He absorbed all of God's wrath against all of our sin until He cried out, It is finished. So that because of His death, God can justify us. He can forgive us. He never excuses our sin. But He takes our sin away. He makes it as though we had never sinned. And in doing this, He is just because our sin has been punished in the person of Jesus Christ. And He is the justifier of those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. This was all God's plan. This was all God's idea. So the, the Word of God absolutely is honest about our sin, but the Word of God doesn't say you've sinned and leave us there. It says you have sinned. Oh, but there's a Savior. There's someone who can deliver you from that. He can take away the poison out of your tongue, the bitterness out of your heart, the hatred. He can give you peace. Turn to Him and be saved. Come to Jesus this day. Find rest for your souls. This was all God's plan. This was all God's idea. This is the God revealed in the Word. And it's why the Word of God is the foundation of our hope from God. But how do we ensure we receive this hope from the Word? Turn back to Romans 15 and 4.
Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. Let me give you three actions to take to be sure we're receiving hope from God's Word. Number one is, is believe Scripture. It's pretty basic. There's no way Scripture can give us comfort and encouragement and hope unless we believe it's right, unless we believe it's real. We, we have to believe that. That's where it starts. We must believe the Word. Secondly, study the Scripture. These things were written for our learning. How are we going to understand what was written? And it's for our learning. We must study Scripture. Man, that's important. I, I can't begin to tell you how important it is you have a personal time where you read through the Bible, whether it is a, a time of diligent study where you read through the Bible in a year, the sort of consistent Bible reading, or whether you do some sort of devotions like that are on you version, coming to church or what we're doing now with online. It is critical you do these things. It is critical we do those things. We will not know what Scripture has said unless we study Scripture. There is no way it can encourage us, it can strengthen us, it can give us hope unless we know what it says. And the only way to truly know what it says is to dig into the Word ourselves. We must study Scripture. And then we must obey Scripture. Right? Patience. Patience in Scripture often refers to perseverance or endurance. Obeying Scripture isn't always easy. But we must obey and keep on obeying. Because if we don't do what it says, we never see that it's real. Right, so take, for instance, Philippians 4. Right, about the peace of God that rules our hearts, guards our hearts in Christ Jesus. It's a great promise. But what precedes the peace of God guarding our hearts? It's praying. Praying with all prayer and supplication. Thanking God. And after we've prayed, we the peace of God. So what if I just read about prayer, and I know what the Bible says about prayer, but I never pray. Will I experience the peace of God? Absolutely not. I have to pray. Not only know what the Bible says about prayer, I have to pray. And as I pray, the peace of God guards my heart. And then my faith in Scripture is strengthened. I know it's true. I know it's true because I've experienced it. Now I want to study it more because what am I missing out on? What, what more is there in here that I don't know? And I study. And I see new things I need to do. And as I do them, I have new experiences with God. And my hope is strengthened. And it becomes this consistent, continual cycle. Obedience in this kind of cycle won't be a burden. It won't be a have to. I want to. I want to pray because I know there's peace. I want to study because I know there's hope. I want to be holy because I know I'm closer to Jesus in that way. I want to do it because I love my Lord. My oh, friend, God's Word is the foundation. The foundation of our hope from God. We have to believe it. We have to study it. We have to obey it or we will miss out on all of it. A few weeks ago when we were looking at the sword of the Spirit, I mentioned the Bible, just having it, it doesn't do these things. It's not a magic charm. It's not a good luck piece. 
just having it and holding it and cuddling it, it doesn't give me hope. It gives me hope as I believe it. It gives me hope as I study it. It gives me hope as I obey it. We must, we must. Or we miss out on everything God has for us and everything God wants to give us. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Make us, Father, a people of the book. Make us a people, Father, who are devoted to your word, who study it, who obey it, who believe it, Lord. And as we obey it and we believe it and we study it, Father, let us have these experiences with you that we see in Scripture, that we would abound in hope, that we would have patience and comfort from Scripture, that we would experience the peace of God, that we would understand the greatness and the goodness and the majesty of our God, that we would see souls saved and lives changed. We would see you empower us to do your will, make a difference in the lives of the world around us. Oh God, there is so much more than we're than we live and we experience, oh God. Help us not to limit who you are and what you can do. Help us not to miss it because we're not in the Word as we ought to be. Give us a hunger for your Word. Let us see it as precious as gold, Father, as sweet as honey. And let us devote ourselves to digging in the Word, obeying the Word, and letting our hope and our strength in you grow. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you about our giving. Please continue to give. You can mail your checks in. Northridge Shreveville Baptist Church, Post Office Box 1707, Guyman, Oklahoma 73942. You can bring it by the church when I'm here. I'm here most days, most weekdays. I'm almost always here around noon, for sure at that time, so you can bring it by then. Uh, or you can go give it online. There's the address. That all That is all one, one word. All of it goes together. You can give online. And that way you can even set it up there to give regularly so you don't have to worry about giving again. Just set it up the one time and you'll be done. It'll consistently give. Right? And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so you abound with hope the power of the Holy Spirit. Love you guys.